0: Chapter Twenty One of the Ordeal of Elizabeth by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Look my best? Elizabeth repeated, standing before her muslin skirted dressing table and staring at the haggard apparition that met her eyes. Wear my most becoming gown, do my hair in the most becoming way. It all sounds so easy but what can bring back my color what can take away these terrible dark rings this horrible strained anxious look any one can see to look at me that i've something on my mind i shall never tell him the truth never never i may beat about the bush but i shall always leave myself a loophole to crawl out of and yet if i could only consult him consult some one find out what i really ought to do "'But no, no, I don't dare risk it. "'It would be terrible to be advised, just the way I don't want. "'I must decide on some plan myself, but heaven knows what!' "'She stood for a while motionless, gazing helplessly into a mist of perplexities. "'The little sevre clock on her mantelpiece roused her as it struck the hour, "'and she began hastily to dress.' she drew the rippling waves of her hair into the fashion that mrs bobby liked she put on her favorite gown a charming creation of white lace and chiffon relieved by touches of pale green she tried conscientiously to look her best but still her cheeks were pale there was the strained look in her eyes she was about ready when mrs bobby's maid came to help her bringing a box of flowers that had just that moment arrived celeste a thrifty person Regarded them with some disgust. She could tell them, these gentlemen, that it was of little use to waste their money on Mademoiselle, who did not care about, sometimes hardly glanced at, the flowers which some other young lady would give her eyes to receive. Ah, well, that was the unequal way in which things in this world were arranged. Celeste disposed of the matter thus, with a philosophic French shrug of her shoulders. But there was no counting on such a capricious person as Mademoiselle. To-night, as she glanced at the card in the box, she blushed beautifully, took the flowers out with care, and read with eager eyes the few lines that the giver had scrawled, apparently in great haste and in pencil. This afternoon I was unspeakably rude, even brutal. Forgive me. What right had I to take you to task for your actions? My only excuse is that I care. I can't help caring so desperately. I send you white roses. They suit you best. You wore one that I gave you, do you remember? But probably you don't. The first night I saw you. If you are very merciful, if you accept my repentance, wear one tonight in token of forgiveness. In token of forgiveness? Elizabeth pressed one of the exquisite, creamy white roses against her glowing cheeks. You wore one the first night I saw you, Probably you don't remember. Ah, yes, she remembered. But that was different. She could not wear one now. Yet, only in token of forgiveness? With a quick, passionate gesture, she raised it to her lips, then fastened it carefully amidst the lace of her gown. Celeste, whose presence she had forgotten, bent down discreetly, with a suppressed smile, to arrange the folds of her train ah clearly after all there was one gentleman who did not waste his money on mademoiselle madame wished mademoiselle to look well to-night she observed after a moment i think madame will be satisfied mademoiselle glanced at herself again and started as she looked could this brilliant young beauty her small head proudly erect her eyes brilliant her cheeks aflame be the same woman whose haggard reflection had stared back at her from the same mirror only half an hour before she did not feel like the same woman the doubts the fears which had beset her then seemed mere chimeras the fancies of a morbid brain she felt gay confident strong enough to conquer even fate celeste was right she looked her best mrs bobby's words rang in her ears such trifles have their effect even on a paragon. And then again, he would think you perfect as you were if he loved you. No, he need not think me perfect, she murmured to her mirror, but he must, he shall think me beautiful, and that is more to the point, she concluded as she gathered up fan and gloves and left the room. The opera that night was Carmen, which peculiarly suited her phase of mind. There is no other which so thoroughly embodies the spirit of recklessness, the triumph of the senses, the frank, impulsive, untrammeled enjoyment of life and of living. To be sure, there is the tragic ending, but before that three acts of brilliant melody, glowing with color, with warm, sensuous pleasure. Gerard was waiting in the box when they arrived. On the stage, Carmen, that ideal Carmen of whom Meremet dreamed, and Bizet set to music, had just appeared upon the scene of Don José's misfortune, and was warbling with bewitching abandon the notes of the habanera. Gerard's face, which had an anxious look, brightened wonderfully, radiantly, as the two women entered the box. He murmured eagerly a few grateful words in Elizabeth's ear, and took the seat directly behind her, which he did not abandon, even though his predictions were justified and Mrs. Van Antwerp's box was filled, after the first act, with men who looked anything but pleased at finding that particular place monopolized. Mrs. Bobby, however, seemed delighted to entertain them, was gracious, charming, and piquant, and elicited from a stern dowager in the next box severe criticisms on the wiles of young married women, and their reprehensible manner of diverting to themselves the attention due to the young girls under their charge. Elizabeth hardly noticed the men who entered the box. She sat with eyes fixed upon the stage, upon that intensely real music drama which she had seen many times already, but which never lost its fascination, yet acutely conscious all the while through every fiber of her being of Gerard's presence, of his watching her, of his bending over her now and again to murmur a word in her ear. And as for him, she had appealed to him most perhaps, at least to a certain side of his nature, that afternoon in her pale languor, and yet he could not but feel his senses thrilled, his pulses throb, when she was so warmly, vividly, humanly beautiful as she was to-night. For the moment he was carried beyond himself, the doubts dispelled, or at least forgotten. And yet, as the evening wore on, Some subtle influence in the music or the play seemed to recall them. At the end of the second act she turned to him, the strains of the Turiedr song still ringing in her ear, and felt insensibly a sudden lack of sympathy, a cloud that seemed to have drifted between them. His brows were knit and his face moody. "'You don't like it?' she said, staring up at him with wondering, disappointed eyes. "'What, the opera?' He stared as if his thoughts had been elsewhere. No, I don't like it, he said frankly. It jars upon me somehow, brings up memories. He paused. Oh, it's some drop of Puritan blood, I suppose, that asserts itself in me. I can't view the thing from an artistic standpoint, he went on impatiently. I can't forget for a moment what a heartless creature the woman is. When I see her ruining men's lives, luring them on, turning from one to another, it's too realistic. There are too many women like that." He was speaking low and bitterly, with a strange vehemence, but suddenly he broke off with a short laugh. "'Oh, it's absurd,' he said, to take a thing like that seriously." Elizabeth did not smile. She leaned back in her chair as if she were suddenly weary. "'Poor Carmen,' she said in a low voice. "'You're very hard on her.' She held up her fan before her eyes as if the light hurt them. A shadow seemed to fall upon her beauty, effacing its color and brilliance, bringing out again into strong relief the dark rings under her eyes, the lines about the mouth. She sat in silence for a while, but suddenly she turned to him. "'I'm going to shock you, I'm afraid,' she said. "'But, do you know, somehow I can't help seeing the other side. What is a woman to do?' if she changes, against her will? Is she to abide always inexorably by the results of a mistake?" A note of passionate feeling thrilled her voice. She fixed her eyes anxiously, intently, upon Gerard. "'There are so many questions that might arise,' she went on eagerly, as he did not answer at once. "'One might, for instance, make a promise, a very solemn promise, and find out afterwards that it was a mistake.' that it would ruin one's whole life to keep it, and—and one might break it, and the other person might think himself very much injured, and yet—would you think the woman in that case so very much to blame? Gerard thought he understood. With the conviction came a sense of passionate relief, which yet he hesitated with the fastidious scruples of a proud and honorable man to grasp in its entirety. I— I don't think I'm competent to express an opinion, he said in a low voice. You should ask someone else. There's no one else whom I can ask, she said quickly, and with her eyes always fixed imploringly upon him. Tell me, what do you think? What should a woman do in a case like that? It's a difficult situation, he said, still holding under control his eager desire to advise her in the only way in which it seemed to him possible to advise her. But how could he trust his own judgment? I, he hesitated, personally, he said, I can't imagine holding a woman to a promise that she has repented of. But other men might, probably would feel differently. Yes, she said sadly, he, this man does. And you, "'The woman is quite sure she has made a mistake?' he asked eagerly. "'Yes, yes, quite sure,' she said quickly. "'A terrible mistake.' "'Then,' said Gerard, and he drew a long sigh as of intense relief, "'I don't think there could be two opinions on the subject. "'No one could advise you, this woman, to ruin her life for a mistake, "'especially if the man were unworthy?' he looked at her questioningly he seemed to her unworthy she said in a low voice then for heaven's sake he asked almost fiercely how can you hesitate she did not speak but turned her eyes toward the stage and again placed her fan so that it shielded them all over the house there was the subdued rustle of people returning to their seats the orchestra sounded the first notes of the third act the curtain rose upon the gypsy camp during michaela's solo and the scene between the two men elizabeth still sat silent her fan before her face the act was well advanced before she turned to gerard then she said you would advise me to to break my word under the circumstances yes he said steadily but don't he went on quickly and a passionate vibration thrilled his voice more unrepressed than ever before don't be guided by my opinion In this particular case it is—it is impossible for me to judge impartially." "'Is it?' she asked softly, and then added quickly, as if to avert an answer. "'Still, I'm glad to know your opinion. I feel sure you wouldn't say what you don't think. Thank you—thank you very much.' Her tone was low and subdued, like that of a grateful child. She leaned back in her chair with a look of relief that seemed both physical and mental. She did not speak again till near the end of the act, when Carmen reads her fortune in the cards. "'I wonder,' Elizabeth said then, softly, what she sees in them. "'I had my fortune told once,' she observed, turning to Gerard as the curtain fell. "'It was when I was at school, and I went out with one of the girls to a famous palmist. He told me all sorts of strange, true things about the past, and about the future. She paused. "'Well, about the future?' he asked, smiling. "'One doesn't care about the past, but he predicted no doubt all sorts of delightful things about your future.' "'No,' she stared thoughtfully before her with knit brows. "'He said—' she spoke low and hesitatingly. "'He said there was luck in my hand, plenty of it. I should have splendid opportunities, but—' He said that there was a line of misfortune which crossed the other line and might make it utterly useless. That there was danger of some kind. He couldn't tell what, threatening me, about my twenty-first year. And that, you know, is very near. He said there were strange lines, tragic, unusual. She stopped. It sounds very ridiculous, but though she tried to smile her voice trembled and yet I remember it frightened me at the time, and does still a little, when I think about it. "'But you don't, surely,' cried Gerard. "'My dear child, you don't suppose he knew a thing about it?' "'I don't know. I believe I'm superstitious, are you not?' "'I'm afraid I am,' he said, but not about things like that. I've seen too many predictions of that kind prove false to give them any thought.' "'It is foolish to worry about them,' she admitted. But still she sat apparently deep in thought, and played absently with her fan. At last she looked up with her most brilliant smile. I don't know why it is, she said, but we seem to be faded on unpleasant subjects, and yet the opera is so gay, do let us try for the rest of the evening to think of pleasant things. She turned and held out her hand, smiling, to a man who entered the box. For the rest of the opera she was brilliant, animated, beautiful as she had been at first. And now you are satisfied, she said, looking at Gerard with laughing eyes as the curtain fell for the last time. Carmen comes to a bad end. According to your principles, she deserved it. Ah, my principles, he said, smiling. I'm afraid I don't live up to them very much. Don't you? she gave him a quick, searching glance as he stood with her cloak in his hand. I wish I could believe that, she murmured. I should be a little less afraid of you." He placed the cloak about her shoulders. "'It is I who am afraid of you,' he whispered, bending over her, and have been ever since I knew you." Her eyes fell, and she fumbled nervously with the fastening of the cloak. "'You're afraid of me?' she said, under her breath. And now—' "'Oh, I've grown very brave,' he murmured, as he followed her out of the box. "'You can't frighten me away any longer.' The jesting words lingered in her ear as they left the opera house. "'Ah, if he knew,' she said to herself as she sank into the corner of the carriage. "'He doesn't know, and yet I told him the exact truth. "'It's not my fault if he misunderstood.' And Gerard, meanwhile, was telling himself that he understood it all. "'Poor child!' he murmured to himself as he lit a cigar and sauntered slowly home. "'So that was it. Of course she thought she loved him. The first man she met, and when he turned up, felt herself bound. I see it all. And she has suffered, had terrible pangs of conscience over the thing. And I, who misjudged her all the time, imagined I don't know what. Could I have advised her differently? Surely not.' The fellow's not worthy of her, neither am I. She won't look at me probably, and yet one can but try. Chapter twenty one.